But one thing that I do see, particularly coming back to the U.S. a couple of years ago after being based in Asia for a long time, is that most Western analysts um, simply do not understand the way China works. China doesn't want to be like the West. The sort of objective functions that Western analysts tend to project onto China make it difficult or impossible in many ways for them to actually understand China. Welcome uh, to International Business Today podcast, where we discuss current uh, international business and global strategy issues, which are important to practitioners, academics, and students. Our experts draw on their years of experience and deep research expertise. Here at the Demora McKim School of Business at Northeastern University, we are committed to disseminating research that managers can use. As academic specialists in international business and strategy, this podcast is aimed at global business professionals who want to be informed about current international business issues rooted in data and facts so as to be able to make better decisions and uh, craft sound policies. This is our second season of International Business Today. I'm uh, Ravi Sarathi, professor in the International Business and Strategy Group here at uh, Demora McKim School of Business, Northeastern University. And today with me is my colleague from Northeastern, Professor Mike Enright. He's the Pierre Shuary Family Professor in Global Business at DMSB. Mike has several degrees from Harvard, undergraduate and MBA, as well as a PhD in economics. And he's a professor of strategy at our school, Demora McKim. And he's also a consultant whose specialty is China. He's written several articles and books on China, including, most recently, Developing China, The Remarkable Impact of Foreign Direct Investment. He has spent over two decades living and working in China. He served on the boards of several companies based in and focused on China, and he's advised numerous multinational and Chinese companies about the appropriate strategies for the Chinese market and using Chinese supply chains. As a speaker and executive director, executive educator, he has lectured on international competitiveness, business strategy, and in complex and uncertain environments, as well as developments in China and Asia in over 40 countries. Mike, Welcome to International Business Today. Thank you, Ravi. Uh, China is, I think, a country that's on everyone's minds who's at all interested in business. So let me start off by asking a very obvious question. Has China's role in the global economy changed? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, when China started its economic opening process in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, it was among the most backward economies in the world. Uh, today, it's the world's second largest economy. And in many industries, it is by far the world's largest market in terms of smartphones, cement, steel, a wide range of industries. Um, and some of the cutting edge work, be it in urbanization, in uh, transportation, uh, high-speed rail, for example, uh, is going on in China today. So it's gone from a really a backward market to, in many senses, not only a large, but a quite advanced market. Uh, CEO of Procter & Gamble was quoted as saying that the most cutting-edge customers that they have are actually not in the U.S., they're in China. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, China is also uh, the world's largest exporter, the world's largest manufacturer. Uh, we've known at least, you know, intellectually for a long time that companies like Apple uh, source 90, 95 percent of uh, their products in China. Walmart, again, 85, 90 percent of their suppliers uh, are in China. But it was really more recently with the COVID pandemic uh, that we saw how dominant uh, China is as a source of supply for a wide range of other goods, mm-hmm. such as the personal protection equipment, uh, ventilators, some pharmaceutical components. So it's only recently that uh, people really started to see how dominant uh, China is a, as a production location. And China has also uh, become uh, not only a major destination uh, for foreign companies and foreign investment, but it's been a major source now of uh, foreign investment as well as Chinese companies uh, Mm -hmm. start to internationalize. So the role today, uh, of course, is very prominent and it's really, it's still evolving and is likely to become much more important in the future. Mm -hmm. So how do you see China having changed pre-pandemic to post-COVID-19 pandemic? What are some of the big changes that really matter for the world economy? Well, if we think about the business and sort of economic response, Uh, The early days of the pandemic itself, which were largely centered in China, uh, we started seeing companies seriously discussing uh, diversification of supply chains, uh, resilience in the supply chains. And although as the uh, pandemic abated a bit in China and and caught on everywhere else, some of that talk was diminished with the uh, zero COVID policies that China was running, particularly during uh, 2022 and the sudden and and rather um, complete lockdowns we saw in many locations, companies uh, brought back on the table the um, the idea of maybe thinking China plus one, China plus two in terms of supply chains. And of course, major multinational companies looked at their China operations and said, well, if we're going to have uncertainty about information and policy, it adds to the risk factor uh, associated with doing mm-hmm. business in China. Mm-hmm. So what do you think China wants from the global economy? Well, I think what China has wanted from the global economy has been remarkably consistent over the years. Mm-hmm. China's desire to join the global economy was not even so much primarily to drive economic growth and and improve the standard of living, although that was a significant component. It was really to make the Chinese economy and Chinese firms stronger and more resilient. So in that context, foreign investment and foreign companies have almost always been viewed as a necessary evil that would bring in uh, contacts, export markets, capital, technology, management expertise from which Chinese companies could learn and there could be spillovers into the Chinese economy and Chinese firms to make the economy as a whole and Chinese firms stronger. If we look at some of the recent policy uh, statements and and, uh, directions, we see in the dual circulation economy, which uh, figures prominently in the 14th five-year plan, we see, in essence, China trying to reduce its dependence on the rest of the world in terms of imports, technology, Mm -hmm. and so on, while almost increasing the rest of the world's dependence on China. And as well, we see China 
wanting to move from being what we might call a rule taker in the global economy to be a rule maker. One example of that is the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which was an initiative announced in, in 2013 that uh, is designed to help link China to many countries around the world in terms of infrastructure linkages, policy linkages, investment trade linkages. At this point, uh, over 140 countries have actually signed memoranda of understanding with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. And if we look at the core of what that initiative is designed to do, it's really designed to link China to more and more economies around the world, which has a very clear uh, economic uh, influence. It has a very, very clear business influence. China is funding a lot of the infrastructure in those countries, and it's being supported by Chinese banks and a lot of the heavy work actually done by Chinese companies. But also, in a way, it's an attempt to decouple mm -hmm. many of those countries from the tradi traditional Western economic powers and even uh, the traditional multilateral uh, agencies. Mm -hmm. And if we look at another initiative, the Made in China 2025 initiative, which was announced in 2015, that's really a plan to use state planning and state support to make China a leader in 10 key technology areas that are viewed as critical, not only economically, but also potentially strategically going forward. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was the, the targets, the, the hard targets for China and Chinese companies to displace foreign firms first in the domestic market and then the international market, which resulted in the pushback uh, first from Europe and then in the U.S., which has become uh, rounds of, of tariff uh, battles and what the West uh, started calling decoupling. Mm -hmm. So I think I've read this and heard this, and it seems like you're echoing some of this, that if the 20th century was, in a sense, the American century, the next century is going to be the Chinese century. And if so, how should the world's governments, such as the U.S., Europe, Japan, etc., uh, deal with China, negotiate, and uh, and come to some kind of modus operandi with the Chinese uh, national aspirations and Chinese uh, business sector? Well, it'll be, first of all, be very interesting to see mm -hmm. how the world and the world economy uh, evolve. Mm. Many analysts project that China's GDP will pass that of the U.S. sometime in the early 2030s, mm -hmm. and that may indeed uh, take place. But if we combine the U.S. economy with, say, the U.S., the EU economy, rather, Japan, Australia, in other words, sort of westernized mm -hmm. countries, then the throw weight, the economic throw weight of the West, broadly mm -hmm. defined, yeah. is going to be much, much larger than China's as far as the eye can see. Mm -hmm. Another issue is that while China from about 1980 to 2010 uh, exhibited a demographic dividend where basically the population of working age was increasing on an average of 2.5% per year. Mm -hmm. Starting around 2030, it's projected that the working age population will start decreasing by about 2.5% a year. So China may indeed become larger than the U.S. in terms of GDP, but it's not going to become that much larger if the demographics play mm -hmm. out. 
But so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But another feature is that in the process of pushing its own industrialization, it has caused a pushback from the rest of the world. So we saw under the prior U.S. administration uh, a series of tariffs, in essence designed to take a page out of China's playbook and trade access to the U.S. market for policy changes just the way China has always used access to its market to get uh, what it wanted in terms of policies and, and strategies by, by companies. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing as China becomes more influential, in a sense, some of the, uh, the traditional rules of the global economic game breaking down to the point where in January 2020, the uh, trade representatives from the US, EU, and Japan jointly wrote a letter to the WTO uh, demanding the WTO institute more stringent mm -hmm. rules on state-sponsored industrialization. So basically, China is changing the rules of the game. Uh, sorry to answer the question you asked before. What does China want? China wants freedom of action. China wants freedom of action domestically, and it wants freedom of action internationally. It wants to be self-sufficient enough in key industries and technologies to feel safe uh, in both economic and geopolitical terms. Uh, it doesn't mind uh, spreading its influence uh, to use its uh, economic strength to uh, win friends and influence people. But some of that, while it may be distinctive in terms of how China is doing it, many of the motivations are not that different from those that other economic powers have had over the years. Mm -hmm. You've been talking about what China wants from the world. As you know, this podcast is aimed partly at business professionals. And many of our listeners have activities in the past and likely going forward with China. So what would be your advice for multinational executives who have continuing interest in China? How should they be thinking about evolving their strategy for doing business in China and competing with China? Well, given the far-reaching nature of China's influence on the global economy, you really have to divide it into a, in mm -hmm. a couple of, of different aspects. One, of course, is doing business in China itself. A second is competing with China or Chinese entities in, in global markets. And a third uh, is thinking about sort of global economic governance and how that's likely to evolve uh, mm -hmm. going forward with political and trade tensions and so on. So for the, the first part, um, in China itself, mm -hmm. uh, there's a wide range of firm experiences. Uh, firms are facing a slower growth, uh, again, a declining workforce, which means uh, costs are increasing. They're also facing, in many cases, a very tough competitive environment. In many industries, competition in China is uh, more intense than anywhere else in the world. And it's not just foreign companies competing with each other. In many industries, Chinese companies who, you know, 20, 30 years ago were considered very backwards. In many industries, uh, Chinese companies are very, very strong competitors. Mm -hmm. And so some companies have to re, uh, readjust, recalibrate just because of the competitive uh, challenges uh, that they face in China. The policy regime is also shifting. And in particular with China's self-sufficiency drive, 
that some companies that are in those industries that China has targeted for self-sufficiency are finding themselves limited in mm. terms of what they can do in the China market. And there, the question is, do they play along? And in many cases, if they play along, they may be allowed a certain share of the Chinese market, which can still be very good business for them. Mm -hmm. If they don't play along, then they may be excluded. Okay, But it's still the situation that companies that are international companies that have something that they can bring to the table that China values in terms of its own economic initiatives or its own industrial development, China will open the door. Uh, so again, a company like Tesla was able to get the first uh, wholly foreign-owned auto facility in China. And uh, in 2021, I believe Tesla did about 50% of its sales and about 50% of its profits out of its China operations. So for Tesla, it was clearly a good deal. But what did China get out of it? What China got was probably the most advanced electrical vehicle company coming, setting up a factory, supercharging the local supply chain, exporting large numbers of autos out of China, while still, uh, even 2022, having below 8% of the electrical vehicle market in China. So it really varies uh, in companies that are in uh, sectors that China feels it needs to develop, doesn't have the capabilities uh, to develop. Uh, in many uh, industries like that, environmental technologies, for example, the door is wide open. Other industries, the door can be shut and can be shut pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. If we think about um, competing with China and Chinese entities globally, uh, we see companies like Huawei, who were laggards in the past, now having uh, on the order of 15, 20% of the global market for uh, advanced telecom equipment. We're seeing increasingly Chinese companies, Chinese-supported entities coming out, and even for firms that are not uh, competing in China, they may be facing that competition outside of China. And even companies that may not be trying to sell in China but are sourcing there are having to look at their supply chains. They're having to look at them not only in terms of cost, but also in terms of resilience as seen by COVID. And also getting sort of to the third category, what's going on in, in geopolitics today? Mm -hmm. Because in some industries, what we're likely to see is both China and the West raising barriers on national security and or industrial policy uh, rationales. And as a result, some industries are likely to bifurcate where there will be a Chinese or Chinese uh, economic orbit industry that will be largely separated from the West and rest of the world uh, market. Uh, again, this is more likely in uh, industries that both sides view as strategic. Mm -hmm. Other industries that are not considered strategic, as long as the tensions between East and West don't get too out of hand, they're likely to see pretty much business as usual. So it's really, it, it really it, it requires a company to look carefully at its industry. Is it strategic or not from a Chinese standpoint, a Western standpoint? look at themselves, the company themselves, do they bring something to the table that uh, can enhance, can uh, move forward some of China's uh, economic initiatives? 
will there be pushback in their home countries if they do? And are they going to be in the crossfires of international trade tensions or whether they can sort of fly beneath the radar? So it really varies company by company. But these are the things that, you know, when we talk to our clients that we're really having them focus on is really understand where East and West mm -hmm. will continue to be together, uh, where they can uh, organize their supply chains to be resilient, dealing both inside and outside of China, and then how to manage uh, an increasingly difficult uh, geopolitical environment where being seen uh, to be economically contributing to one side may be viewed as a negative on the other side. Mm -hmm. So it's like having two masters, and the multinational company has to think about pleasing China, but also making sure that it pleases its uh, national interests at home. Yes, and companies that have been international companies for a long time. They're used to having to deal with local politics. Mm -hmm. They're used to having to deal with global politics. They're used to having to deal with uh, different uh, industrial and economic policies in different nations. The difference with respect to China is really one of magnitude in terms of size and also uh, the systematic and comprehensive nature of China's strategy, uh, which is also probably unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most important lessons we can take from China is the role of industrial policy. And China has been practicing in the industrial policy since 1980, and the results are there for everyone to see. China has climbed to you know, almost equiparity with the U.S. in terms of size. And as you say, it's a middle-income country, and it's trying to get out of that middle-income trap. And so the next, uh, I would say, 30 or 40 years, perhaps you agree or not, will be that attempt by China to reach you know, the top ranks of standards of living and GDP per capita at a time when some of these tensions, geopolitical tensions, as well as demographic uh, uh, decline are going to be taking place. Well, and again, there are multiple views. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one view that China's rapid economic development may be primarily due to its industrial policy, but there's another view that mm -hmm. says it's primarily due to catch-up mm -hmm. and simply allowing market forces at play to a much greater extent and gradually uh, allowing more uh, market orientation to seep into the economy and that that's been driving uh, the growth. And it'll be very interesting to see if the, the state-directed uh, industrial policy with its resources is uh, capable of moving China from what China itself admits is a follower to a leader particularly in advanced industries and advanced mm -hmm. technologies. But one thing that I do see, particularly coming back to the U.S. a couple of years ago after being based in Asia for a long time, is that most Western analysts um, simply do not understand the way China works. Mm -hmm. They do not understand that China uh, views itself as historically having been, in a sense, subjugated uh, economically. Uh, China views itself as not accorded the respect that it, it should command in the international arena. And fundamentally, they don't necessarily understand that China doesn't want to be like the West. And the sort of objective functions that Western analysts tend to project onto China make it difficult or impossible in many ways for them to actually understand China. 
So what we really need to do, we need to understand China's objective policies, understand the desire of the Chinese Communist Party to retain control, the desire of both the party and the government to create economic self-sufficiency so that China will never experience uh, the type of subjugation it feels it experienced in, in the past. And when we, when we stop um, ascribing you know, our uh, objective functions onto China, its policies, uh, and its leaders, uh, that's number one, when we can understand better. And number two, uh, we can be better negotiators and hopefully partners, perhaps competitors in the global economy going forward. This has been fascinating, Mike. I think there's a lot to be thinking about. And I particularly like the last point you made, which is th that we all need to understand China better. And perhaps there's a gap in understanding between Western countries and China, and maybe both sides need to understand each other better in order to be able to uh, come to some kind of status quo co coexistence and progressively moving forward with prosperity on both sides. Yes, absolutely. Right. Thank you very much, Mike. This has been great. Thank you. And Robert. I hope uh, you all enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us with International Business Today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it for the rest of the series. And of course, share the podcast with anyone else who you think might benefit from this information and from our entire podcast series. If you have questions or something you want to cover in the future episodes or just send us some comments, we would love to hear from you. So thank you once again, and we will see you on the next uh, episode. Bye.